Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 1.12, The Collapse of the Powhatan Confederacy. Before we begin this week, I want to take a quick moment to correct a mistake that I had made last week. At the very end of the last episode, I had made a comment in literally the last sentence of the episode that we were going to address the Powhatan Indians fighting the Virginia Indians this week. That is not what we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about the Powhatan tribes facing off against the Virginia settlers, not the Indians, so that was a mistake on my part, and I am very sorry for that. We have spent nearly three months in Virginia, and between this episode and our next episode, we are going to get ourselves into a place where we can leave our Virginia settlers to their own devices for a while. After this week, we are going to move our story north to New England and begin our examination into the Puritans. But before we can do that, we need to look at the changes in the colony as they close out the teens and move through the 1620s. Last week, we saw the importance of tobacco at helping secure the future of the colony. We talked about changes to the law that moved the colony in a much more authoritarian direction, but did help cure some of the critical problems from the early years of Jamestown. Likewise, we saw the importance of the peace between the English and the Powhatan people following 1613. Well, the colony enjoyed its first period of relative stability during this time, the stability is not something that's going to last forever. The colony is no longer in danger of failing, however that does not mean that struggles don't still exist. This is going to be exemplified by the death of Powhatan in 1618. As we will discuss, while Powhatan had pursued a policy of containment, his brother Opashenkano is going to take a much more aggressive stance towards the English settlers. This is going to lead us to an event that would forever change the relationship between the English and the Indians, specifically the Massacre of 1622. As you will see throughout today, this is going to be an event that is going to have a profound impact on the colony moving forward, as well as for the future of the Virginia Company. Following the massacre, the dynamics between the Powhatan people and the English will never return to what they once had been. The Powhatan tribes were clearly in a place of decline, whereas the English were suddenly growing at an extraordinary rate. All of this is going to ultimately lead us to the collapse of the once powerful Powhatan Confederacy. Today, that is the story I plan to tell. And this episode is going to wrap up the portion of our story dealing with the Powhatan people. Following the end of the First Anglo-Powhatan War in 1613, relations between the English and the Indians had begun to improve. It is through this piece that the English were able to begin expanding outward and focus on growing crops such as tobacco. Beyond the usefulness of peace, however, Powhatan had always taken a pragmatic view of the English. Powhatan recognized the importance of good relations with the English, as they could operate as a check against his enemies. And we have discussed this in some depth already. If you recall, this is a relationship that helps explain why Powhatan was willing to assist the English with food in the first place. However, by this time, you may have noticed that Powhatan has been part of our story for a really long time. We started talking about him back when we discussed Roanoke. From the moment that the first settlers landed in Jamestown in 1607, Powhatan had been a defining factor for the colony. It is not a coincidence that during that terrible winter of 1609-1610, Powhatan had chosen not to provide the colony with food. Despite this, however, Powhatan had never really been bent on the destruction of the English. He appears to have understood the power of the English and had wanted to gain them as an ally for his own use. Powhatan had, yes, sought to contain, however, he never sought to destroy. But, as I mentioned above, Powhatan is no longer a young man, and in April of 1618, Powhatan was in his early 70s. 
After decades in power, it is time for Powhatan to leave our story. During April of 1618, Powhatan dies. Following the death of Powhatan, the Confederacy came under the leadership of his brother, Opashankano. Opashankano was not Powhatan, which is something that is going to become apparent in the years to come. Whereas Powhatan had been pursuing a policy of containment, Opashankano was staunchly against English expansion and still had hopes of driving them out of Virginia entirely. If you'll recall from a few weeks ago, we had discussed the possibility that Opashankano was actually Don Luis, the same Don Luis that gave Powhatan the advice that he should kill all the English, the same Don Luis who had taken place in that slaughter of the Jesuits years before. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, please go check out episode 1.6 for some more information on this. But the quick explanation is that there is some thought that Don Luis and Opashankano are the same person. The very fact that this is even a thing is telling, and while the claim is probably dubious, there is a reason why Opashinkano could be confused for a guy like Don Luis. Upon taking control, Opashinkano was slow to actually do anything too dramatic. Opashinkano initially took a relaxed approach. He would make overtures that he was thinking about converting to Christianity, though it's unclear if this was something that anybody ever really took seriously. Likewise, unlike his brother, he encouraged the settlers to go ahead, spread out. And while this might seem like an odd decision, considering that Opashankano by all accounts was hoping to remove the English menace, there's a reason behind it that's going to become all more apparent in a moment. The English would write in the years between 1619 and 1621 about how good the relations were and how the Indians and the colonists had become good friends. Then Governor George Yardley wrote about how every man was able to plant where they pleased and follow their business securely. When Yardley was replaced by Sir Francis Wyatt in 1621, Wyatt would comment that he found the country in very great amity and confidence with the natives. He ominously commented that the peace was so strong that the sky would fall before he dissolved the peace. For nearly 10 years, there had been a peaceful existence between the Confederacy and the English. Among the English, the thought was that the peaceful cooperation was the policy to pursue with the Indians. None of this, of course, fits in the narrative that we have seen from Opashinkano. We have discussed the fact that Opashinkano was adamantly opposed to English settlement. Despite the fact that the English viewed this as a solid and lasting peace, Opashinkano viewed the English as an invasion and planned to deal with it aggressively. Sometime during the fall of 1621, Opashinkano began working with the other chiefs to plan an attack on the colonists. There is at least some question of why initially Opashinkano had taken this position. After all, the evidence suggested that he was always square in his goals of removing the English. So why allow them the chance to expand? I have not actually been able to find a single theory on the subject, but rather several of them. One line of thinking is that the expansion that Opashinkano allowed was simply there to put the English in a vulnerable spot. Outside the fort, they became increasingly dispersed and they would prove to be a much easier target. At the same time, there are the realities of the situation on the ground that Opashankano had to be aware of. In his view, the invaders were expanding outside their original footprint and in an accelerating fashion were gobbling up more and more land. While Opashankano had the manpower to fight the English, the idea of going up against their muskets must have seemed to be less than desirable. The English weaponry was far more advanced than what he had. The tribes could choose to move further inland, however, that ran the risk of encroachment on other hostile tribes. Opashinkano remained staunchly against the idea of any kind of assimilation. For him, the best option was going to be the military route. 
a single devastating attack that would cause the English to abandon the project altogether. Opashikano would have also known that the settlers coming in, despite their superior weapons, were inexperienced in force combat. Therefore, drawing them out of the fort gave him an advantage against the English in battle. Opashikano had spent the first years of his time in power allowing the expansion. However, by the time 1621 had come around, it was clear that further expansion was going to put his people at risk. With any kind of cultural assimilation off the table, probably from both sides, and the idea of abandoning their land and moving to hostile lands inland, both seemed like poor options. Instead, a single debilitating attack, followed by drawing the English into the forest for the ultimate war, looked like it was going to be the best option for him. During the period after the fall of 1621, Opa Shingano continued to encourage the settlers to feel free to expand past the boundaries of Jamestown. This is a much-needed thing for the colony at the time with the growth of tobacco. Tobacco is a land-heavy crop, and expansion past Jamestown was absolutely critical to the further growth of tobacco within the colony. We even see Opa Shingano appear to be friend colonist George Throp during this time. Throp was busy building a school for Indian children. Throp and Opa Shinkano seem to have had a good relationship during this time, and Throp appears to have genuinely liked Opa Shinkano. There is a story that when the English Mastiffs scared the Indian children, Throp had several of them killed in front of the Indians. This is during the time that Opa Shinkano all along is plotting his next move. After months of planning, on March 22, 1622, Opa Shinkano launched an attack on the colony. This was a well-planned, well-coordinated attack. All of the settlers who had spread out from Jamestown, well, now they were sitting in the open outside the fort, and they were quickly overwhelmed by the forces under the command of Opashenkano. There is no way to put it other than this was devastating. 350 people lay dead. Farms were burned. Livestock slaughtered. Approximately a third of the population of the colony had been killed. Among the dead was George Thrope. Also dead were three members of the Virginia Council. John Rolfe, who had returned to Virginia after Pocahontas died, also lay dead. The attack was shocking. The devastation of it was something that was not only contained to the colonies, but spread across the Atlantic to Europe. I've mentioned before that in 1624, the Powhatan Confederacy was not a popular group. And if you've wondered why that is the reason, well, this attack is why they were no longer popular. John Smith would remark upon learning the attack happened that this was good news for the colony as it gave them the just cause to eliminate the Indians. The attack was so successful partially because of the expansion of the colony outside the original fort. The English policy was to set the plots of land approximately 10 miles apart from each other. The Virginia Company had begun giving out plots of land, known as hundreds, for their 100-acre size. Back in London, the plan was laid that these hundreds should be separated by 10 miles in between. For the English, it helped to expand their role in Virginia, as it was a method to rapidly increase the amount of land they actually held. Jamestown by this time had grown so large that it was now divided into four boroughs. And as things spread out from the fort, the English gained the flexibility of owning ever-increasing swaths of land. For Opa Schenkano, it meant that he was able to lead an attack on the colonists without them being able to mount any meaningful defense. The colonists had become so spread out that even sounding an alarm was basically a pointless task because no one's going to hear it. Now, skirmishes between the Indians and the English was nothing new. However, this stepped way over the line. Something like this does not happen in a vacuum. In the years after the attack, we are going to see the long-term effects as a result of this attack. 
The first effect is that, much as John Smith had previously indicated, the English by this point basically had carte blanche against the Indians. The second major effect is something that we are going to discuss a bit more next week, and that is the collapse of the Virginia Company. We will return to that in our next episode. However, for today, I want to focus primarily on that first effect and the immediate response from the English. The attack in 1622 led to a fundamental shift in thinking for the English settlers. I mentioned a short time ago that for the decade preceding the attack, the policy of peaceful cooperation had existed in Virginia between the English and the Powhatan people. Almost overnight, that policy, though, shifted. Following the massacre, Governor Wyatt would write, Our first work is expulsion of the savages. For it is infinitely better to have no heathen among us, who at best were but as thorns in our side, than to be at peace and in league with them. Following the events of 1622, there will never be a return to the idea of peaceful cooperation. Even following a peace settlement in 1632, we will never again see any real attempt at integration by either side, or a sense that coexistence is something that will be readily available or even possible. In the short term, though, Jamestown had to figure out how to deal with a sudden shortage of labor, not to mention that with the burnt farms, a serious shortage of food. This is going to cause a period of famine and disease that is going to cause the death of several hundred more settlers. Possibly as many as five to six hundred more settlers would die from illness and starvation throughout 1622. I do want to note, however, that while the massacre was a major contributing cause of this period of dying, it was not the only cause. We know that at least 200 of these deaths can be attributed to a bad batch of beer that made its way to the colony in 1622. The instructions of the London Company by this point were clear. Total war was the plan. The farmers were given permission to follow in the footsteps of the Spanish with a policy of violent removal and enslavement. Initially, the English response remained relatively muted. The English were in a bad spot and first needed to get back on their feet. The ability to get back on their feet, however, is one of the things that the English continually excel at in Virginia. Much like Powhatan had once done, Opechinkano seems to have failed in understanding the ability of the English to resupply their men. Opechinkano might have had the numerical advantage on the ground, but the English had a seemingly unlimited supply on a conveyor belt from England. Despite the deaths from the massacre and the following period of famine and disease, the English were able to make up their numbers before the end of 1622, when 16 ships brought 800 new settlers into the colony. Just like that, the loss of manpower at the hands of Opechinkano was essentially negated. Initially, we do see a period of skirmishes where the English and the Indians exchange some blows at each other. However, none of these attacks really moves in the direction of what one would consider a real battle. The English, of course, were not going to go forever, however, without a proper response. That response would come in May of 1623. The English had spent the preceding months attacking the Indians, burning their villages, and destroying their food supply. That May, the Indians were themselves now experiencing major food shortages and were in a position where they had to make a deal themselves. The English came to them and made peace overtures. Following a period of negotiations, a peace was reached. To mark the peace, the English proposed a toast and invited 250 Indians attending the negotiations to have a drink with them. The problem is that the drinks that the Indians had been given were drugged. The English quickly moved and slaughtered the entire room. Opechinkano was not present during the counter-massacre. Opechinkano would continue to lead resistance against the English until a real peace was reached in 1632. The peace in 1632, however, is telling. 
Following the end of the First Anglo-Powden War, we saw a decade of peaceful relations come into place. For the most part, during that decade, the sides just coexisted. However, now the English were far less interested in coexisting peacefully with the Indians. The peace settlement of 1632 was harsh for Opashinkano and must have been a bitter pill to swallow. The English got Opashinkano to agree to massive land concessions. The English were now allowed to continue their expansion northward along the Chesapeake. The big difference, however, was that this peace was not meant to enter into a new period of cooperation between the two sides. Instead, the peace was designed to do exactly the opposite. Strict borders were to be established. Separation was the plan. Other than communication for the limited purpose of trade, the English made clear that they did not want anything to do with Opashinkano or the Powhatan people. The English by this point had become self-sufficient. The Powhatan tribes were no longer needed to provide food or to help ensure their survival. Even after the peace, the Powhatan tribes were viewed as a nuisance at best, an enemy at worst. The English wanted to be clear that there was no room for both cultures to exist. The English left no mistake of which culture they intended to survive into the future. In the years after 1632, Jamestown continued to thrive. During the 1630s, the colony began to see its population rapidly expand. This is something that becomes an important factor moving forward. As the population of Jamestown expands, there is further pressure placed on an already limited amount of land. For the English, the boundaries of the settlement of 1632 was, to an extent, more of a suggestion than any kind of hard border. Now, of course, for the Powhatan people, this was a fixed border. The peace between Opashinkano and the English therefore remained tenuous at best. Opashinkano, with his options dwindling, decided that his best move was a repeat of the 1622 massacre. In 1644, Opashinkano made the tactical decision that it was the time to strike again. This is an interesting decision for the Powhatan leader. Now an elderly man, probably in his 90s, he had witnessed the diminishing of his people and the once powerful Powhatan Confederacy. By the time that 1644 had rolled around, much had changed. Jamestown by this point had entered into the era of William Berkeley. Berkeley is going to become an absolute titan in Virginia and is going to spend the next several decades completely changing the face of the colony. Berkeley became the royal governor back in 1642 and was anxious to make his mark. Eliminating the threat that had plagued Jamestown literally from 1607 was just one way for him to do it, and the attack in 1644 gave Berkeley all the justification he needed to eliminate the Powhatan Confederacy once and for all. Now, as a quick note before moving on, I'm intentionally not going to do a full introduction to William Berkeley here today. Berkeley is, in fact, a huge figure and is going to wind up being the longest-serving governor in the entire history of Virginia. However, his role in this episode and the next episode are going to be relatively minor. Next season, we are going to spend a lot of time with William Berkeley when we cover Bacon's Rebellion. So, for now, know that William Berkeley is in our story, that he is super important, and that is about all you need to worry about for today. The attack in 1622 had made some degree of sense. After all, Opashinkano knew that during the attack that he still had a major advantage in the immediately available manpower, discounting the English ability to restock men, as well as far more experience fighting in the forest. While the English did enjoy a decisive advantage in their arms, their ability to defeat Opashinkano was not in fact certain. The colony had a population of only about a thousand people in 1622, 
it was at least reasonably thought that the massacre could be successful in so seriously weakening the colony that it could cause the English to retreat from the colony back to England. For Opashenko, it must have seemed like a last-ditch effort to stop what was now nothing short of an invasion. By the time of the 1644 attack, however, the English colony was in a much different place. No longer were people dying at an unsustainable rate. In fact, the population of the colony had exploded. By the time of the 1644 attack, the colony had approximately 10,000 people. Well, unclear how many men Opashinkano had at that point, it is almost certainly less than the English had. On the morning of April 18th, 1644, Opashinkano made his move. Much as in the attack in 1622, the attack in 1644 was a surprise attack and did in fact catch the English off guard. During the 1622 attack, Obashinkano had managed to kill approximately 350 people, which at the time was about a third of the colony. The attack of 1644 was actually more successful in actual numbers, with between 400 and 500 settlers killed. However, while undeniably bad, this was far from the catastrophic blow that the 1622 attacks had appeared to be on its face. Despite more people dying during the 1644 attack, it was a significantly smaller portion of the Virginia population. What followed was the third and final Anglo-Powden War. Unlike earlier periods, there is no room to debate if this is a fair fight. The English had more men, superior weapons, and were still growing. Opashinkano and his people had been in decline for a while and possessed little hope of successfully expelling the English or even recapturing a portion of their lost lands. One must question what the thought process of Opashinkano was by the time that 1644 had come around. The most logical explanation for the attack, to me at least, is that Opashinkano may have been trying to force the English into a more favorable peace than that that they had secured in 1632. It, however, shouldn't be discounted that for the aging Paramount Chief, this may have just been his final act of defiance, his last attempt to try to recapture what had been his. From the English perspective, it was abundantly clear by this point that the Powhatan tribes were a continuing danger for the colonists and their prosperity. What would follow over the next two years were English attacks, which managed to destroy a majority of the Indian towns along the river and scatter their survivors deeper into the forest. These attacks are nothing short of devastating for the Powhatan people. Not only do they no longer have the manpower to mount a capable resistance, but the English had gained the pretext to remove them completely from the land, land that the English needed to continue to expand. In 1646, Opashenkano himself was captured transported back to Jamestown as something of a trophy. By this point, Opashinkano was nearly 100 years old, blind and barely able to walk. His time in Jamestown, however, would be short. Shortly after making it into a fort, an angry soldier shot and killed him. For all practical purposes, this is the end of the Powhatan Confederacy. The remaining tribes agreed to a peace which banned them from Jamestown Peninsula under the penalty of death. They had to accept that the English had essentially free reign to colonize at will. Finally, they had to acknowledge the King of England as their sovereign. Make no mistake, this was complete and total defeat for the Powhatan people. Having to accept the King of England as their sovereign basically marks the end of the Powhatan Confederacy's ability to meaningfully conduct their own self-rule. We will not see another figure like Powhatan or Opashinkano rise up to take the reins of power. For Opashinkano, he is left with a mixed legacy. Well, so often he stood in the background of Powhatan, his voice was something that was always present. He had spent nearly 30 years in charge of a tribe that had to deal with a rapidly expanding and increasingly powerful English threat. 
Ultimately, however, under his reign, it is going to be defined by those attacks in 1622 and 1644. In each case, he scored a major early victory, followed by a decisive loss in the larger war. While he may have felt that he had few options on the table, one cannot discount that he is the final paramount chieftain of the Powhatan Confederacy. So, where does that leave us? The Powhatan Confederacy has been part of our story since episode 1.6, though I don't think I actually named them until the following episode. For the entire story of Jamestown, however, the Powhatan people have been central to the story. During the early years, the settlers were dependent on them for their own survival. And as time progresses, the tribe would move from being a nuisance to an outright enemy force. In some ways, this transition always seemed inevitable. Upon first arriving in Jamestown, the English were in a position where they knew they were going to have to rely upon local tribes for their very survival. And while this does lead to some early clashes, for the most part, Powhatan obliged. We have discussed at some length the advantages for Powhatan. To summarize, however, as long as Powhatan was helping to feed the colonists, Powhatan was basically serving his three major goals. First, the colonists were less likely to become hostile towards his people. After all, you don't bite the hand that feeds. Second, Powhatan likely viewed this arrangement as a method where he could make the English into a powerful ally. Let's not forget that Powhatan had his own enemies among the other Virginia tribes. If you're facing a serious threat, Powhatan recognized that he was the one providing food to the English and they are obviously not going to want to disrupt their ability to eat and therefore would back him. Finally, Powhatan recognized that by controlling the food, he was also managing a degree of control over the growth of the colony. While Powhatan was trying to use the colony to his own devices, he certainly did not want the colony expanding. Controlling the food supply should have meant that he could control the colony's growth into areas where Powhatan did not want them. He maintained the ability to cut off their food at any time and just let them starve, and we see what happens when he does this in 1609-1610 during the starving time. The problem for the Powhatan people, however, is that they never fully seem to understand that the almost unlimited number of people that the English had available to resupply the colony. Knowing what we know today, this seems obvious, but for Powhatan, he could only gauge from the information that he had on hand. He would have no idea how many people the English had or that they would just keep coming. In fact, his beliefs were probably colored by his earlier encounter with English settlers during the 1580s. In that case, when a group of English settlers showed up at Roanoke, that was it. You don't see waves and waves of people coming over from England to resupply the colony. Once they were gone, they were gone. The conveyor belt that we have talked about over the last few weeks didn't exist for Roanoke because remember, it's going on under the backdrop of the Anglo-Spanish War. One must wonder though, what would have happened if Powhatan had in fact listened to Opashinkano or Don Luis, or possibly one if they're just the same person, and attacked the colonists right off the bat. Certainly, it seems possible that had Powhatan acted aggressively, he would have been able to wipe out the English. After all, we know at the time of their arrival in 1607, the English had around 104 colonists. Powhatan had at least 14,000 members, which that is the low estimate I found. Other estimates have that number closer to 24,000 people. As much as the English ability to resupply would become critical later on, and despite the far more advanced weapons of the English, Powhatan's manpower advantage was simply overwhelming. Had he wanted to, he could have quickly eliminated the English threat from Jamestown. While we have no idea how the English would have responded, it does not seem likely that they would have really sent much of a response at all. A response by the English would have been extraordinarily difficult and expensive. 
1607, the English had just come out of a long war, and the last thing that King James would have wanted was to launch an amphibious invasion across the Atlantic because of a few dead colonists. The more likely result is that we would have seen the English try their hand at colonization again elsewhere in North America. That is, if the English decided that they even wanted to give it another go. Regardless of what might have happened, here is what we know. By the time 1669 rolls around, the Powhatan tribes, which may have at one point numbered as many as 24,000 members on the eve of Jamestown, were down to less than 2,000 members. Through a mixture of disease and warfare, the tribes that had made up the Confederacy had been utterly decimated. During the same time, the English have gone from 104 settlers to approximately 41,000 colonists. The central organization of the Confederacy had ceased to exist following the Treaty of 1647. The Powhatan Confederacy, for all intents and purposes, was over. And that is where we are going to leave the remnants of the Powhatan people. We are going to briefly see some of the tribes that have made up the Powhatan Confederacy again well into the future when we discuss Bacon's Rebellion. However, that is still a ways off in our story. Next time we are going to bring our Jamestown story to an end. To do this, we are going to go back and look at the political developments that occurred in the colony throughout the 1620s. This is going to include the rise of local government and the transition to a crown colony following the collapse of the Virginia Company. After our next episode, we are going to finally be in a place where we can move forward and begin looking at New England. So with that, I will see you back here in two weeks' time, and we will begin to discuss the future of the Virginia Company and the political situation forming in and around Jamestown. I appreciate you all listening and hope you have a great two weeks. <laughs>